Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcasts. Knowledge at Wharton is the online research and business analysis journal of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Support for Knowledge at Wharton podcasts comes from Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their long-term financial goals at Vanguard.com. Almost everyone will agree these days that an organization's intellectual capital or knowledge assets are as important as its physical assets. But finding a way to capture, organize, and use knowledge is easier said than done. In fact, as companies grow larger and more complex, this is one of the most daunting challenges they face. So how can they deal with this challenge? Mike Lynch, founder and CEO of Autonomy, a company with offices in Cambridge, England, and San Francisco, believes that his company's technology can help organizations extract meaning from massive amounts of unstructured information. Autonomy even has a name for this process. They call it meaning-based computing. I'm Mukul Pandya, editor of Knowledge at Wharton, and I spoke recently by phone with Mike Lynch, who was in England, and Kevin Werbach, a professor of legal studies at Wharton, who has written extensively about these issues. Kevin Werbach is also the organizer of the Supernova Conference, which he organizes in San Francisco in collaboration with the Wharton School. Our discussion began with Kevin Werbach remembering that he has spoken with Mike Lynch before. Okay. How are you, Mike, by the way? I, I think we may have talked some years ago when I was working with Esther Dyson. Yeah, it's um, well, I'm, I'm very lucky today because I'm in England and it's the one day of summer, so it's glorious. <laughs> oh, well, we, should, we should make this short so you can enjoy it while you can. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, great. Well, uh, let, let me start by asking Mike a question based on something that happened just this morning. Uh, I wanted to find an article that Kevin had written featuring autonomy in Release 1.0. So I went to Google, entered a couple of keywords, and in less, less than a second, I found the article. It was titled, The Architecture of Internet 2.0, and it was written in 1999. Uh, I'm sure that most people who are looking for information these days follow more or less the same process that I did. Uh, now, as I understand it, autonomy's technology is based on something you call meaning-based computing that lets companies and also organizations like the Department of Homeland Security find information quite differently than by searching keywords. So what is meaning-based computing, and how does it differ from keyword search? Well, the, the, the first thing is rather uh, sort of in a, 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 like being in a world where all cars start with starting handles. You, you've just sort of asked me about the starting handles that are used to start cars. And we sort of come back a little bit from that. So we're not necessarily talking about finding things. What meaning-based computing is the idea that actually what you want to do is relate information by what it means independently of the form in which the information is being brought to you. So to give you a simple example, it may be that um, we want to uh, deal with some information that may have been transmitted in a television program or the facts that we need to know may have been in a phone call or in an email or on a web page. And actually, we don't really care very much. Um, so the point is that those pieces of information are related by their actual meaning, uh, not um, you know, the format which they're in. So meaning-based computing is all about the idea of getting computers to 
to actually understand the meaning of a piece of information. And when you do that, then not only can you um, actually find information more efficiently, uh, but you can actually process information. So, for example, if we talk about normal IT, where you have information that's been highly structured, for example, of the bank, you might have a big database for all the accounts, and if someone goes overdrawn, then the uh, IT database can spot that and send them a nasty letter. And what's happened is that the, uh, the IT system has automated a task. Now, when we move to human-friendly information, things like emails or Word documents or TV shows or phone calls, at the moment, computers generally aren't used to actually do a task, but just to retrieve it, because you rely on a human being to do the task. But with meaning-based computing, the computer can actually do the task often um, without having to use the human being. And when you have that kind of technology, that means you can automate a lot of things. You can discover things you didn't know you were going to look for, which is a very important part. Um, but also it does mean you can make uh, more useful search technologies as well. So let me give you an example. Um, rather than you actually deciding to go and search for something and having to formulate a query and then look at the results. Imagine if, as you were writing notes on uh, on this uh, upcoming recording that you were doing, the computer could just read what was on your screen, understand the ideas uh, in an email you might be writing, and then alert you to the fact that there was an article which you didn't even know existed. Mm. That's an example of meaning-based computing being much more powerful than uh, just finding keywords in a search when you decide that you want to go and look for something. That, that's really interesting. Kevin, uh, perhaps you could react to what Mike just said. Uh, do you find many companies using the kind of approach that he just described? and What's in it for them? Well, I, I think Mike is absolutely right that there you know, is, is a great deal of value in uh, being able to have computers uh, understand concepts uh, or relate to uh, concepts which are, which are sort of fluid, um, uh, uncertain things, um, not uh, the kinds of, of hard-edge defined terms that, that machines are traditionally very good at doing uh, things around. Um, there's no question that um, pure keyword search alone is not going to be sufficient to do all the sorts of things we'd like to do with machines. We've got this tremendous uh, amount of data that's available online in one form or another. And you know, I think what we've seen with, with Google and other Internet search engines um, is uh, just how powerful it is as a starting point being able to, to at least access that data through some search mechanism. But I, I think Mike is absolutely right. That's not the whole story. Um, I tend to look at these things as not mutually exclusive. I mean, autonomy has some, some great technology um, and a concept around this as meaning-based computing. Uh, but there, there are lots of different, uh, you know, technologies and applications that we're talking about here in this context, um, basically they all come down to the fact that we've got lots and lots of people, uh, lots of machines out there with increasingly good computing power and just an ocean of information out there. Um, and so the list of things that we might want to do, uh, connecting up the people with the information through the machines is, is virtually endless. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we've come a tremendous way in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, but we have a, a much more long way to go. So I, I would agree that there are, there are any number of applications for these kinds of technologies. Different companies will have different 
algorithms and technologies that are that are better or worse for particular situations. But that's that's only natural. Uh, that's great, uh, Mike. I believe uh, uh, speaking of, uh, of, of of history, uh, I believe autonomous technology has an interesting history. Uh, I, I believe it was uh, first developed for British intelligence. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how your technology uh, originated and how it has evolved? Yeah, um, just following on from the last point, it's probably worth stating that meaning-based computing is a very broad idea, and there are many different methods and people involved in it. You know, it ranges from people doing work on speech recognition and image recognition to the kind of work that we do, which um, you know often treats language as a mathematical problem, to people who work in computational linguistics. So it's an area where there are still many difficult problems and many unsolved ones, and uh, many of the best solutions are actually drawing on work from many different people. The work that um, that Autonomy has done has really been to um, to look at the problem from a point of view of how do you actually get an understanding of a meaning or an idea. And there have basically been two big research areas on this. One is to use the rules of linguistics and grammar. And it's sort of the the obvious thing to do, so the computer tries to understand, uh, you know, what's a noun and what's a verb and break out the sentence. And although that's the obvious way to do it, it's been difficult to get that to work. And the reason being that a lot of the information you need isn't actually in the rules of language. So the dog walked into the room, it was furry. Actually, you can only successfully pass the it by knowing that dogs are more likely to be furry than rooms. And because of that and the difficulties of slang and non-grammatical usage and different languages, um, we started really viewing the problem rather differently. And we said, well, if you took all the words you get in a language, you put them into a one of those wonderful fabled black bags that probability mathematicians always imagine having, and you pulled out the words and you put them on a page, you'd expect to get a set of random words. But of course, when you actually pick up a book, the words don't appear randomly. You know, the word dog and walk appear together more than they ought to by pure chance. And the reason for that is that that random process is biased by the idea of a dog and the fact that they go on walks, and therefore when you see the word dog, you're more likely to see the word walk than you should be. And uh, what you can do then is use a very interesting piece of mathematics, um, which actually dates back to the 1750s. In the 1750s, there was an English country parson called Thomas Bayes, and he came up with Bayes' theorem, which uh, anyone that studies statistics has probably come across it in its most straightforward uses. But really, in the last 20 years, mathematicians have realized that Bayes' theorem can give us a fundamentally new way of looking at meaning. And with Bayes' theorem, uh, what you can actually do is invert that problem, and by reading things, work out that there's this idea of a dog, and they go on walks, and uh, they have noses and fur and all these sort of things. And so the particular method that we tend to use most in in our meaning-based computing applications is that kind of technology. Now... You know, you did mention um, that, you know, that technology gets used by people like the intelligence community. Well, that's often because their problems are actually a little bit more difficult. So, you know, we started talking today about search, but of course, one of the big problems with the intelligence world is you don't actually know what to search for. Um, So that sort of rather puts you in a difficult position. What you actually want is a system that says, this looks a bit suspicious here, and there seems to be a relationship between this and this. Why don't you check it out? Because 
you know, even if we had the world's best search engine, by just typing stuff into it, that wouldn't actually um, tell us what we need to know because we don't actually know exactly what to search for. Yeah, and that's and that's not a, an uncommon occurrence. You know that 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 you know um, military and intelligence communities have some of the, the you know the hardest problems to to address uh, with regard to computing and and also uh, problems that are, that are truly mission critical and and where the issue is you know people may die if we get this wrong, so we we are going to invest everything we can to get it right. Um, you know, much of the underlying technology of the internet itself came out of military research programs as well. Um, and you know, then that you know became extended and applied to uh, more commercial problems. Right, uh, Kevin, that's a great point. And I was wondering if uh, you, you you see uh, the way in, uh, if if there are ways in which what the process that Mike just described uh, can be applied not just to intelligence uh, uh, services and uh, organizations like the Department of Homeland Security, uh, but also by companies. Uh, uh, is there uh, something wrong with the way? most enterprises manage their content today, and uh, can the process that Mike described uh, make a difference? Uh, well, those are, those are two different questions. I, I think if you ask any enterprise IT person um, that will give you an honest answer, is there a problem in the way enterprises manage their content, they'll, they'll say, surely. Uh, uh, again, it comes down to the fact that there's just there's so much information out there, uh, and organizing it is, is increasingly difficult. Um, but but no question. I mean, the, the same types of um, you know issues that 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 come up, uh, for example, in in, in uh, you know intelligence type situations that have have analogs um, in the more prosaic world of, of the enterprise. Um, you know, if you're trying to um, work on a project and you want to find out uh, has anyone in this company uh, worked on a similar kind of project before? Uh, again, if you know exactly what everyone calls that. Uh, called that project, you can go and search for a document, but people use different terms, they organize things in different ways. Um, you can't necessarily put two and two together. People are really good at, at making associations between vague concepts as opposed to specific words. Machines historically haven't been. Um, and so applications like that, applications like you know some of the things that, that Mike described, uh, you know, making computers more task-based if you want to schedule a meeting um, you know, having the machine be able to read an email message as it comes in and understand that, you know, this involves you schedule a meeting with your team and you're going to be on a plane and where your cell phone is uh, and when you want to be interrupted and how important this meeting is and who's your boss uh, and what sorts of documents you might need. Those, those are all applications where um, the ability of the computers to understand meanings as opposed to just words would be extremely helpful. I think it's a you know, it's it's an area which is rapidly growing. So you know, it, at the moment, uh, autonomy does about a quarter of a billion dollars a year in in meaning-based computing, and that's growing very rapidly. And 80% of that is actually in the commercial sector. So what you've seen in the last uh, you know year or two is large companies, you know, companies like AstraZeneca or Vodafone or Philips, uh, Nokia actually now decide that unstructured information is key to their business and standardize on meaning-based computing platforms across the whole company so that they can start to bring together the information from all of their operations, extract a meaning from it, and make it available for all of the other operations. Because, you know, you may be getting emails from your customers. Those emails wouldn't traditionally 
go to a human being who would then try and classify them and put information into a database in the CRM system. But now you have meaning-based technologies. You can do things like take those emails, cluster them by meaning, compare those clusters to yesterday, and it immediately alerts you if, for example, you've got a faulty batch of product or if there was a TV show about your product. And so that information becomes incredibly valuable, for example, to quality control or to engineering or to marketing. And uh, I think now that we're seeing these sort of meaning-based models of understanding the information across a company, what you're seeing is that information being reused a lot more to extract the value from it uh, for the different departments inside a company. Right. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, that, that sounds, uh, as, as you were saying, uh, like a really valuable resource for companies to have. In your experience, uh, what, has been the, what have been some of the biggest barriers to uh, its adoption by companies? Well, so the first one is that inherently the real value of these kind of technologies is, is most obviously seen with unstructured data. So this is data that isn't database data, things like um, emails, reports, um, you know, perhaps recordings of conferences, that sort of thing, or phone calls. And traditionally, companies have been a bit slow to realize the importance of those. So they're used to their you know, ERP system actually running the backbone of the company. Now, that's changed, and there's, you know, there's almost a crisis-level scramble in large corporates to sort out the problems around unstructured information. But the first port of call is generally a search engine. So really, just like we started this call, people think, you know, if I can just make this stuff searchable, um, then I've dealt with, with the problem. And so companies tend to go through that phase. Um, companies that have been through that phase then start to become much more knowledgeable about the opportunities and the threats that unstructured information gives you. And, you know, I say threats. For example, you know, if you're an investment bank and one of your employees sends uh, uh, the wrong type of email out, that can cost you $100 million. And that's another classic example where once you understand the danger around unstructured information there, putting in technologies that, for example, will read the email as it's sent and uh, stop it being sent if it's a problem and say to the person sending it, you know, you really don't want to send this. I would suggest you revise this. It can be a, can be a key part. So it's really about people understanding what can now be done and understanding that IT is about information technology. It's not about databases. Great. Uh, Kevin, I think uh, what Mike said is very interesting, but there, there are lots of ways of dealing with unstructured information. Uh, we hear a lot these days about metadata tagging and user-generated content categories or folksonomies. Uh, what's your view on this? Isn't the human wisdom of the crowd better than automated knowledge extraction? Uh, my, my view is that, is that both approaches have, have a great deal of value, and, and we're going to see all of them, as well as, as uh, derivatives of more traditional keyword search uh, being important pieces of the puzzle going forward. Um, the issue here again is that is that you know, the volumes are potentially so extraordinary. The question is how do you scale the solution to meet the problem? Uh, having rooms full of people manually tagging things doesn't scale. So, you know, if you're a drug company and and you want to uh, get all the research that comes in from journals and also from your own people and classify it all, you could employ a team of people to classify it. But as as the volumes increase, it just gets too big. So one way to address that is distribute the problem out, um, which is what folksonomies and tagging are doing. Um, 
letting people tag their own content. The, the downside of that is you have no uniform tree. So two people might tag the same content differently, um, but the benefits of having so many more tags um, are so great in, in large volumes that they, that they um, overcome that. Um, that's a valuable uh, technique, but uh, in and of itself, it's not an entire solution. There's still a cost of people doing that, that tagging, and there's still, uh, again, an error rate in the tagging. So some of the more uh, automated algorithmic-type approaches, like Mike is talking about, um, can address things that, that those mechanisms can't address. The, the reality here is, you know, we're talking about things that sound a lot like artificial intelligence. You know, the machines will think they will understand everything. Um, and the problem with artificial intelligence, as anyone who's, who's familiar with it knows, is that it was hugely overpromised, and uh, the human brain turned out to be much more complex than we thought. So what's happening now is backing off from these grand claims that the machine is going to be a person and going back to, to using a variety of techniques um, to solve initially small problems and then working way, our way up into more complex, bigger problems, um, and uh, using them to actually get real value. And, and you know, I would agree with Mike, we're at the point now where this is not just science fiction. It, it really can work in a way that looks like the machine is understanding the information. Um, but there's still going to be many different uh, kinds of technologies employed in that, many different pieces, uh, some of which will work better for some problems and some of which will work better for others. I think if we look at folksonomies, then, you know, it's again a situation where there are good uses for it, but the limitations are often not very obvious to people. You know, the Department of Defense had a project where it mandated that all of its um, documents produced internally would be tagged by its own staff. And uh, it came back a few months later and found that 96% of documents were tagged general because people didn't have the time to actually do anything other than put all the documents in the same bucket. I think the other thing that people forget about the folksonomy model is that the specificity of recall is very broad because in order to be very specific, you have to have a lot of tags. But as soon as you have a lot of tags, the probability that someone else is going to use the same tags becomes vanishingly small. So there's a certain type of information it works well for. And of course, the last one is in a corporate, a lot of the information is esoteric. You know, it's very hard to get a good tagging um, community together when actually what you're tagging is, you know, iron epitaxy depositing on gallium arsenide laser diode production. Because actually there aren't that many people um, that know about that. So, you know, it's, it's a limited... Um, area. It works a lot better in the internet where it's a bit of a popularity um, contest. And, you know, for example, that's also an example with Google. So, you know, the way that Google disambiguizes which of all the documents with the murder in Madonna to put top so that you don't get the Madonna laundry in Chicago is by looking at the links to the pages. And so the pages linked to most come to the top. Well, that concept of popularity being useful inside a corporate um, is much less likely to apply, but also there's very few links. So, you know, the point that, that we're making here, which is that the different technologies are useful for different things, I think is valid, and they have their, their sweet spots. But a lot of it is about being sensible. Let me give you an example. If you're a large company and you have on your website support at BigCo, you get lots of emails, and one of the things that will happen is there'll be a room full of two or 300 people that receive all those emails, and all they do is they read the email to work out where in the company to send that to. 
and then the experts on pickup trucks or whatever answer the email. Now, if you try and replace all those people with a computer, you'll see um, a level of accuracy fall on the routing of those emails. But if you try and replace 90% of those people, you'll see exactly the same accuracy of routing. And that's really the point here, that it's important not to be dogmatic, because the machine is capable of routing the easiest 90% just as well as the humans. But the difficult 10%, it's not very good at at all. And these are things like sarcasm, which doesn't make sense to a computer. But what a computer can do is spot something that doesn't make sense and say, I really need to hand that to a human. So it's about being commercially sensible in a way often that you know, a lot of the original goals of AI weren't. And let the computer do what it can do and let the humans do the other bits. Uh, Mike, you mentioned Google, and, and uh, uh, as, as you know, in addition to their web search, uh, uh, both Google and Microsoft are also competing in the market for enterprise search products. Uh, how does a, a company like Autonomy compete against uh, giants like that? Well, Google's been in the business for about three years, and uh, we just don't see them at our end of the business. So, um, you know, we... we uh, we do about 100 deals a quarter, and we don't actually see Google's nanny. And the reason is very simple, which is um, the Google technology is a keyword search technology. Because you don't have links in the enterprise, the relevance models um, don't give Google a particular advantage over Microsoft or any of the other players. And it has very limited ability to do the other things that enterprises need to do, such as categorizing, um, alerting, clustering, all of which actually need to have some understanding of the meaning rather than just bringing back all the documents with the word dog in. So whilst we'll often see companies buy Google for a department or start by Google, um, when they actually come to do large um, systems which require a platform for understanding information, um, then they'll come to us. So you know, Google's actually a very good primer for us. We almost never... Um, get taken up by a company that hasn't sort of dabbled its feet in the water with a product like Google or one of their competitors at that level. But after that, they have a good understanding of, of the kind of problems. And the enterprise is very difficult because, you know, in the enterprise, most employees aren't allowed to see most content. It's not like the Internet. And given that all that content stored in hundreds of different repositories, and in a few milliseconds, you've got to decide who's allowed to see what. It's actually really rather a specialist art form. Uh, I have uh, uh, Kevin. Do you have a response to that, or want to uh, build on that? Um, no, I think it just comes back to what I said before. That there, there are different solutions for for different kinds of problems, and and uh, I think because of the success of Google and and, and the popular awareness of Google. Um, people who aren't familiar with this space tend to assume anything having to do with search and categorization and information retrieval and content management reduces to um, Internet search engines. And while you know, much of the core technology and expertise that Google has is applicable to this market, they're going into this market, and I expect them to, um, you know, to be a bigger player in it in the future, um, it's not the case that um, you know building the best public internet search engine is is precisely the same challenge as building the most effective enterprise tool for the kinds of things that Mike talks about. Great. I, I know uh, we're almost out of time, but I just have one final question for both of you. Uh, what's the next big thing in information retrieval? And Kevin, you want to go first, and then Mike. 
Oh, I, I don't think that there's a next big thing. As I said, we're, we're talking about doing things that people have been talking about doing seriously for at least 20 to 30 years. It's just that now, first of all, the technology has advanced to the point where um, it works um, quite well if you apply it right. Um, and we're in a situation where there's more information on the web, uh, accessible and enterprise um, online resources, and all interconnected. And we're in a period where this is more and more mission critical. Uh, it's mission critical, as we talked about, for uh, organizations like Homeland Security, but it's mission critical for corporations. I mean, if you're a drug company, the ability to, uh, you know, coordinate information that, that you've got, to, you know, the, the famous line was from the former CEO, I think, of HP, who said, if only we knew what we knew, our company would be tremendously more successful. Uh, well, that's more and more essential in business today, and, and the kinds of technologies that autonomy and, and other companies that, that, as Mike said, do different pieces of, of what they call meaning-based computing, um, those things will be very valuable in, uh, in this kind of era. Uh, Mike, do you want to add uh, your your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think I agree very much with what's just been said, and I don't think there's a next big thing um, from a technology point of view. I think that that hill has you know, probably the most interesting change has happened over the last two or three years. I think the big thing, though, is the philosophy change which we're seeing, especially in Fortune 1000s, where they're seeing unstructured information as mission critical and core to their business, and therefore having a strategy, whatever that is, for um, understanding and extracting value and processing that information is key. And you know, when you see, you know, a hundred of the world's largest companies sit down at sea level and set standards and a strategy for unstructured information, then I think it's reasonable to say that that's going prime time now. That's great. Well, thank you both very much. I really appreciate your taking the time to speak to our listeners. Thanks very much. Yeah, my pleasure.